Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm Adam Elwanger. I'm very excited about my guest today. Uh, he is Dr. Scott Yenner, professor of political science at Boise State University. Uh, he is the author of many publications, peer-reviewed. Um, otherwise, his most recent book is The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Um, he has been a Washington Fellow at Claremont Center for the American Way of Life, and he has recently taken on a new position as Senior Director of State Coalitions, where he will focus in large part on uh, exactly what we discuss on this program, um, the, the critical uh, role that universities play in American life and um, how we can maybe restore some of their proper functions. I should also say, uh, before I welcome you, Scott, that you give some of the best talks at the National Conservatism Conferences. I've seen uh, both of the ones that created a stir live, and I enjoyed them very much. So thanks for appearing on the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Adam. It's a great pleasure. So uh, I ask the same question to start of everybody who comes on the show, and this is largely for students who might listen to this. As a young man, how did you decide to pursue a career in academia and why political science? What were the, the sequence of events that drew you in that direction? Yeah, I, I went to university as a history major. I got a full ride as a history major. I was I took a lot of AP classes. I was very into European history and ancient history when I was young. Uh, I was young before the internet, so all we had were books. And uh, I used to know all the presidents, all the vice presidents, all the secretaries of state. I uh, I could name most of the speakers of the house. You know, I was just really into American history. I still have bays of books on American history. And um, I was taking a class in Southeast Asian history. And, uh, you know, I didn't think the professor was all that smart or all that dumb. But at the same time, I was taking a class in political science. Hmm. And it was introduction to political philosophy class. And by the time I was done with that, we had Machiavelli and Locke and Hobbes, and we did Rousseau at the end. By the time I was done, I recognized that my Southeast Asian history professor was just living in the world that Rousseau created for him. That he was talking all the time about how the the ancient Southeast Asians, they worked for like an hour a day, and then they had repose and women and drink and and the natural a, state. Yeah, they were in the natural state. And and so I asked this guy, I was like, Well, you know, have you ever read Rousseau? Like it just seems like you're talking about this. And um, and he's like, no, I've heard of him, but you know, I haven't. Heard of him. And then I just said, well, I'm done with you. And and I I had the same experience with a 20th century um, history professor who I thought was living in the world that was created by Nietzsche. And and I just, I said, well, if I want to get an education, I shouldn't go to these secondary people. I went to the primary people, and uh, so I just switched my major. I only took two classes in political philosophy, that modern class and an ancient class the next semester. But like, it's all I did. It's, uh, you know, I I just read Tocqueville and I read Aristotle and I studied the stuff and I read, I started reading stuff about them. And I just didn't think my education was done. I wasn't really thinking about becoming a professor, but I did not think my education was done when I was an undergraduate. I felt like I had just scratched the surface on what I needed to know in order to be 
like just be satisfied with myself and my life. So um, I went to a place that was not bad, you know, Loyola University, Chicago, and it ended up being just like a blessed choice. Um, there were three great professors there. All of them were kind of nearing the end of their careers. Uh, but John Danford, Tom Engeman, the late Tom Engeman, and Ray Tatalovich were my professors. And I just got a great education. And um, so, like, well, I'll just, why don't I provide this for other people? So I just <laughs> went into the job. So I, I kind of went into it barefoot. I kind of went into it naive. Um, and and I um, think that might be, in a way, the best way to do it. Because um, I just really only wanted the education out of it. Um, but what I got was kind of a whole life. And so I think that's harder to find now. And I certainly think that the motivation that students have for studying should not be getting jobs anymore, but it should be to find a place to get an education. So yeah, it was a very life transforming um, uh, set of uh, episodes there, switching from history to political philosophy and then going on the rest of my life. It's interesting to me that you ran across two professors, one who had sort of imbibed or absorbed Rousseau completely by osmosis, another who had done the same thing for Nietzsche. Do you think it's fair to say that essentially what students, especially in the humanities and social sciences, are getting now is sort of just a melange of Marx, Freud, Rousseau, and Nietzsche, totally by osmosis, of course, but that's kind of the the brew yeah, I mean, I might throw in a feminist thinker or two, but yeah, that, uh, that, and I think this might always be the case, you know, uh, that there was probably a glory day of, of the humanities or something, but that, uh, that literary analysis was usually liberal in one way or another, or it uh, was very biographical before that. And I think that the humanities, do kind of ride on the trends of deeper philosophic currents. And uh, and uh, so going to the heart of it is really where you need to start, which doesn't mean that we ignore literature or history or anything like that, but actually we can get great greater enjoyment out of it than anyone else because we realize that these guys are actually part of the great conversation too. Uh, this afternoon, amidst all of my occasional writings, I always try to take away two hours during the day to do writings on permanent books. And uh, so I was reading uh, and finishing today, Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, which I've read before, but I think I was too young to appreciate what was going on in the book. And, you know, it's just ab absolutely wonderful um, to read about the permanent, like, state of what death means to human beings and how it changes them and and what the ultimate concerns of love and death are uh, among the characters. And and those end up being kind of, you know, like reactions of philosophy that happen in literature. So, yeah, I, I do think that what's going on in the universities now is a product of philosophers. But I think that's kind of always the case. It's just that the philosophies used to be healthier. <laughs> <laughs> I think I work in an English department and... One of the real tragedies, it seems to me, is that aesthetic education has almost dropped out of of the teaching agenda entirely. Now it's almost all these works. It's not even great books thing anymore. It's just like which texts give us the springboard we want in order to loft ourselves into whatever social critique we need to do. And so if the order of the day is 
put upon feminists, well, then we'll read The Awakening, not for any reason other than to uh, serve as a segue into a larger conversation about um, 21st century women in beach houses who are not living their best life. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, that's the unfortunate reality. And it's, and it's, you know, English departments, it seems to me, you know, I'm not in an English department, but I've written on Willa Cather and I teach Tolstoy and I teach classes on literature all the time. And I have some, you know, intuitiveness about uh, literary criticism. Um, it seems to me that English is the department where there is the greatest distance between what the discipline could be and what it is. That is, you know, it really could be about the artistic study of the human condition and individual psychology. And the best of the novels are about that. Even The Awakening is kind of about that, uh, where you're trying to figure out the main character whose name is out of my mind, but uh, where you're trying to figure out, well, why is she dissatisfied in her marriage? And what maybe there's something inherently dissatisfied in marriage. And maybe she's raising that issue, you know? But when you take the distance between what literature could be and what it is, it's got to be the largest out of all of them. Like, sociology could never be as good as English. And the fact that it's bad, well, it's still, like, not that <laughs> far away from its best self. <laughs> but, right. but English is so far away from its best self. So yeah. you're getting, I guess, a front row uh, ticket at that kind of, um, at that at, at that reality. By the time I was 24 years old in a master's degree, I had already caught on to sort of the the political con that was at the heart of literary studies. So I switched over to rhetoric, um, which makes me a very odd fit for most English departments these days. But um, that's neither here nor there. I recently read your essay at the American Mind called How Texas A&M Went Woke, which is just about a my, uh, hour, hour and a half up the road from where I am. Um, we do see this, I think, I think people are surprised to learn how prevalent this is in Texas's public universities, um, particularly because it's just culturally so out of, out of step with sort of the, the legacy culture of, of Texas, um, especially in, in the 20th century. It excites me that in your new position at Claremont as I think senior director of state coalitions, You'll be focusing on some of these matters more directly, and I think that your work is going to uh, begin primarily in Florida, but also in the red states particularly, um, or the the red states with most promise, perhaps, in, in stemming the tide of leftism that is sweeping across the nation. So I wonder, there's both a short-term plan for how to respond to the problems in the American university, and a long-term plan. And I'm curious first, in your view, the short term, what are two or three reforms that could be um, enacted that would have the, the most immediate impact on changing sort of either the culture or the institutional function of public universities in America? Do you have some idea about that? Yeah, well, you know, the, the general approach that I take um, is that reform of the modern university is going to be very difficult um, and that our goals should be what I call stigmatize and reconquer. And uh, and the short term goals would be involving stigmatizing the universities, that is like show, showing um, for all to see 
the radicalism that's inherent in parts of the university and uh, and then like trying to cut them off or amputate them from the modern university. So one of the things that Governor DeSantis has done in Florida that I think is a model for everyone else is just explicit defunding of DEI offices. Another thing, and I think this is probably the most important thing for anyone who is interested in reforming or stigmatizing the universities, is finding leaders for universities that do not come from universities. That is, who come from the outside and uh, and aren't captured by the ideology that universities have come to represent. People like uh, Chris Rufo? Well, if he were, yeah, I mean, he's a regent uh, on one of the universities there, but uh, the the universities in Florida, once again, I think it's a, it's a model example, have done really intelligent things by putting kind of old politicians into the role of heading Florida State or heading University of Florida, in the case uh, now Ben Sass. Uh, they've appointed a new person uh, at the new college who's a former Speaker of the House. You know, these are people who are connected to the Republican, in this case, political establishment, but, you know, they're... They're just not concerned about the systems that produce DEI. And in fact, they're hostile to it. And that's why they were selected. And you cannot underestimate the importance of a good university president. And you cannot underestimate the importance of a bad one. The ones that they have, they're kings or queens at these universities. And so intelligent selection of the university uh, leadership um, is I think just really crucial, and places like Texas, where it seems to me I'm not, you know, I'm I'm willing to be corrected on this, uh, where they put kind of good old boys in the board of regents, and then they select educrats to kind of who've come up through the system. Well, you're going to get people um, who are just kind of drifting along at best, and fanatical adherence to DEI ideology uh, at worst. In those circumstances. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, selecting leaders intelligently um, and with an eye toward the problem of DEI uh, is the second, uh, a second very important thing. And a third part, and, you know, I think this is more controversial, but I would like to see the universities broken up. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talked about this in a way uh, years ago, but I think we should just take the disciplines or units um, that are dedicated DEI, things like gender studies, sociology, social work, anthropology, I hate to say it, English, and just put them in their own college. Uh, when I joke about this, I call it the College of Oppression Studies. <laughs> uh, just put them over there, and then you can call it the Oppression College. And then if you have serious disciplines, like that'll be a different university. Maybe they can kind of coexist, but eventually they should separate because um, the there isn't a unified approach to knowledge or what the purpose of the university is uh, um, between these two units. So let's just divide them up. And then let's see like who wants to go to each of these schools. <laughs> and if more people go to the oppression school, well, then maybe it won't do as well. And uh, maybe the faculty will have larger teaching loads and there'll be fewer faculty and maybe tuition will end up being higher. And um, so I do, th but you know, th this is always toward the goal of excising or amputating the parts of the university that are problematic, that are compromising the advancement of knowledge, that are compromising the achievement of common goods, that stigmatize the idea of a reasonable patriotism. 
getting them like separate from the parts that don't do that and that actually can advance knowledge and actually do promote a reasonable patriotism and uh and and, and then rebuild the university along those healthy units um but some disciplines on campus i think are beyond saving that is, I don't think there can be a good queer studies department. And so let's just put them in the oppression college. And do you um, even think that that's a real discipline or is it just sort of a... Uh, are a, you calling me out on being a hypocrite there for talking like this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just observing that I'm not sure <laughs> queer studies has any methodology that it can call its own. It perhaps yeah. has a subject matter, but I don't yeah. think it's a field of knowledge in any way. Yeah, well, that ends up being a problem with many of these um, these units that I would put in the other college. I mean, I came to, you know, to interview at Boise State in 1999. The story has a point. And, um, and one of the, my colleagues, who's now dead, um, said to me, making fun of sociology, he said, sociology, it's not a discipline. It's an ideology. And I'm like, wow, like I could work with this guy, right? I mean, and but that's the reason it can't coexist with those who are promoting knowledge. And uh, so uh, I think that would be like another thing that has to be considered. I think there are methods whereby this could be done, done objectively, but uh, it's difficult to imagine social justice departments coexisting with truth departments. And that's how Haidt put it in his uh, in his shtick on this. And uh, so that'll be a third thing, but like the universities have to be in a way what they were, um, which is keepers of the tradition of our tradition, knowers of other traditions and uh, scientific engines for project progress uh, for the country. And uh, DEI ultimately compromises the first two of those things deeply and is now beginning to compromise the uh, scientific enterprise. So I think, uh, you know, we need to reconquer the institutions with those goals in mind. But we should always, so so like protecting free speech and stopping racial preferences and all that stuff, well, those are only problems because they get in the way of building that university that advances knowledge and, and uh, points toward a reasonable patriotism and stuff. And uh, so we should. So, you know, I, I think everything that's done to reform universities, so-called, needs to be done with reestablishing this, you know, this older idea of a university in our time. You mentioned you contrasted a little bit of what's happened in Florida recently and what's happened in Texas. And uh, you might not have anything to add on this point, but I assume you've been involved in higher level policy conversations on these matters than I have. And and one thing, uh, I've been frustrated with the the slowness at which Greg Abbott has acted on some of this. And and I, I get a part of it. It's like DeSantis makes this move, he fund DEI. It doesn't look great if two weeks later Greg Abbott's like, oh, yeah, we're going to defund DEI too. It, it makes him look like a follower. But aside from that, is there any reason that you can think of that we would be hemming and hawing on this or yeah um i would say something like this that uh the the dei problem in florida's prestige most prestigious universities is not nearly as bad as it is at texas's most prestigious universities 
So when you compare University of Florida and Florida State against Texas and Texas A&M, it's like the boyhood of DEI and the fully mature DEI uh, apparatus and aspirations in Texas. So it's very like the, the surgery is more of a major surgery in Texas. And uh, whereas the surgery in Florida, because they've actually been more prudently run, um, it isn't going to be as much of a gutting um, of the of the most highly prestigious universities. And the people in Florida are just as attached to FSU and UF as the people in Texas are of, at UT Austin, Texas A&M. So there's big lobbies behind, you know, but once again, we're not doing major surgery. We're doing, you know, major-ish surgery in Florida, whereas going after this stuff at University of Texas, Austin, is really going to be like, it's like, it's a mountain climbing. It's hard. And so it's best to ignore it. <laughs> like uh, the cost of actually doing something in, to the Texas universities that have our major problems are just high. And um, so, you know, I, uh, I'm not saying that it's a great policy to bury your head in the sand. But I can understand looking at Texas A&M and saying, or Texas uh, Austin and saying, where do I start? And the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that would proceed from starting are really significant. So I'm not saying that that's like, I excuse anyone for that, but I think that that actually is a factor. Um, then the way to proceed in Texas, maybe since, um, these, the, our best universities in the state are so much at odds with sort of the traditional Texas ethos and in, in other parts of the state that aren't Austin, um, or College Station, which is sort of, uh, uh, still an urban space in Texas. Do you think, um, that if this comes in with the stigmatizing you were talking about, that if more Texans, especially moneyed ones, many of whom went to Texas and A&M, were aware of just how deep the rot is, if there could be a, a major organized effort to deprive um, these institutions of some of their uh, fundraising prowess, that that could stimulate some real change? Or would that just be you know, a, a void that's filled by the board of regents or public funds or whatever. Yeah, I I think the money spigot is going to be a difficult one to use to reform those universities. And uh, UT Austin, more significant problem than A&M. Um, and it will also be just very difficult to get alumni to act. Like, it just hasn't been effective trying to rally alumni hasn't been an effective way of achieving. I mean, I don't know what is effective and we've seen what Florida has done and maybe that's the route to go. Um, but I, I think what the first step that has to be taken in both those places is not legislative. It's through appointments. That is opponents of DEI have to be placed at the head of those institutions. And at least it has to stop expanding. And the next thing that has to happen, I mean, it's going to be like a 12 year slog. For the person who does it, but they're going to have to roll back policies uh, that have been adopted uh, in the last few years uh, since June 2020. And, uh, you know, the further edges of radicalism need to be stopped. And then, you know, like the other elements of stigmatizing that I talked about, breaking up parts of the university and defunding DEI offices can proceed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 
I don't have a ton of hope from the alumni angle. Um, not because the money will fill in from other sources, but because alumni just haven't shown the impetus to be active in sufficient numbers to make the changes. And then if they were, I do think that endowments and uh, state money could fill the gap for a few years while they look for other sources of revenue. And so, yeah, some places are so big that they're kind of immune from political forces and market forces. So one thing that I wanted to ask is um, you when I talked about reform, you sort of hinted at the uh, Marcusean language of sort of re-beginning a, a long march through the institution. And I talked to some people on the series who who advocate that they're like, that's the only way to do it is the long march. And I wonder, I mean, if if their march took, say, 60 years to really complete, if, you know, if we're that effective, do we have 60 years to do this? I mean, it's difficult to imagine if if we're where we are in 2023, that there will be anything left, you know, in, in, in 20 or 30 years that's worth saving at all. I mean, so I guess I'm asking, like, if we do the Marcusean march through or the Gramscian march through the institutions, um, you know, then uh, where, uh, how long is this going to take? And will there be anything left by the time we gain any traction? Well, I, I would like the universities to be smaller and fewer people to go through the universities. And, you know, options opened up for alternative certifications um, so that their importance goes down, so that you know, the size of the pie shrinks from, well, I, I don't know exactly what it is today, but let's say 45% of students go to school in one form or another, like getting that down into the 20s um, so we can decrease the importance of these institutions. But yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen like this. It's not going to happen that fast. I mean, I do think that some sort of crisis has to be reached uh, in order for this, uh, uh, for the lever to be, used on a lot of different things at the same time yeah and uh and so i can't imagine a long march uh through it but i think that you have to prepare public opinion for fast decisive action by stigmatizing and cultivating the idea of reconquering uh these institutions because on the other hand no matter what happens we're gonna have universities they're among the oldest institutions we have in the Western world. They're older than the nation state. They're older than Protestantism. Only the church, only the Catholic church is older, I think, than the idea of universities. So the idea that we can just like ban universities or something is, is ahistorical. It's ridiculous. We need them. Um, they still uh, perform vital functions uh, and not just not in the credentialing. Like there's just some parts of it that the education is indispensable. So, um, yeah, I don't imagine that we have time for the long march, uh, but I do think that the the ground has to be prepared for um, for reconquest of the institutions. Do you have thoughts about accreditation and the role that accrediting bodies plays and how that might be disrupted? I mean, that seems to me sometimes like that's really like the linchpin here is if we can disrupt these monopolies that accrediting bodies have in terms of um, making schools eligible to get their hands on what amounts to government student aid money 
you know, uh, how could that even be accomplished and is it necessary to do it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm less worried about accreditation than I am about credentialing. Um, so like what, what I think universities, like we're going to have to get beyond the PhD system in the universities, like, and because PA, so many PhD programs themselves are corrupt uh, with DEI ideologies and uh, so many disciplines are uh, have this problem. Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran and we had this uh, episode in the early 1970s at one of our seminaries that was uh, relevant to this. So, you know, it's kind of a conservative branch of Lutheranism. And uh, but one of the seminaries was taken over by the liberals. And the liberals practiced a certain kind of uh, theology called the historical critical method, which we don't need to get into. But it basically means that what happened in Bible times was good for Bible times, but now it's like different. And um, so the the images that we use there might inform some of the images we have now, but it it wasn't uh, a permanent importance for us. And so like they were producing pastors who thought this. And what the Missouri Synod did is they're like, well, we're going to suspend these people. And then the people walked out and they said, well, since you walked out, you're all fired. So now <laughs> we have a seminary with no one to teach. Like, that's a problem. And like, it's a reason not to fire them, right? Well, who's going to teach if we fire these guys? But like what they're teaching is going to ruin us. So we just fired them. And then, then we had this seminary with no one to teach. And we just brought in a bunch of pastors who had like formal training and they weren't great, but at least they weren't like evil. <laughs> and um, so, you know, we had like a decade of quasi competent, but orthodox uh, theology professors. And I think of the same thing, like that's how I imagine universities turning around. Like, you know, we do need history and we do need literature, but these bozos who are teaching it, like, we'd be better off having like picking people at random from the phone book than having them teach it. I'm yeah. exaggerating that you get my drift. And so at least these people will read and try to figure out the books right. instead of bringing their uh, predispositions and ideologies to bear on the books. And, but it's just like, maybe, and this is partly accreditation because accreditors say you need to have PhDs. But I think that, you know, like getting, a mass of people to think that the credentials that we have worshipped for so long are actually bad is the crucial like threshold that we have to cross. These do not make you better. That these people are not good at what they're studying, and so just like what happened in our seminary is called the controversy is called the Seminex controversy. It's actually in, in one of the only cases in the modern world that I'm familiar of, of the of conservative groups taking over an institution from liberals, <laughs> expunging them, and reconstituting it on a better basis. Like when I say it like that, can you think of it? I mean, there just aren't a lot of things that uh, uh, institutions that have done that, right? I'm trying to think of one, and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the this is the one that we. It's a model of sorts. And um, so, yeah, I, I think accreditors are problems, but like, here's the, the the dirty secret on accreditors is that they've never turned anyone down. You know, I mean, they they come in with findings, um, but 
everyone's incentive is to give everyone accreditation so that money can keep flowing. So I'm all for calling bluffs when it comes to accreditation. And uh, and when they, for the first time, withhold an accreditation for over, you know, as opposed to just giving them like a warning, uh, I'll believe that it's a real thing. Tell me if I'm crazy, if this sounds crazy to you. I think this might be a policy shortcut. Um, what would happen if Greg Abbott woke up tomorrow and said, screw Saxcock, the accrediting body of the Southern Association of Colleges, universities, or whatever, said the state of Texas is going to have its own accrediting body, right? And And he staffs that accrediting body. Right. And then you don't need to worry about restaffing the administrative level of universities with people from outside, non-woke people. Right. You just have this body that can either deprive every state institution of accreditation um, or, you know, they bring their institution in line with the expectations. I assume that the chink I see in this plan is that the federal government could just say, well, we don't recognize the new accrediting body. And so students are not eligible for financial aid if this institution is accredited by this body. But a state could also then say, okay, well, we're going to set up our own fund at the state level for financing, you know, education in colleges and universities. I mean, is that is that a far-fetched idea? No, I don't think it's far-fetched. Uh, I mean, I've thought of that myself, so I have to say it's not crazy, right? Uh, unless we're both crazy, this is uh, this is possible. We could be. We could be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I just, I just think like accreditation, pulling accreditation from university is such a blunt instrument that it doesn't get used, and it's just like the the uh, penalties in the Civil Rights Act. All right, so if you don't do this. You're going to lose all federal funding. Well, they never do that. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I hesitate to say this because I, I'm not as confident in this as I, as this is going to sound, but I just say, screw the accreditation issue. Like mm-hmm. I just, you know, do the, the reforms you want to do and, Like if they're going to pull all of the funding and say that the people who've been in this school for three years have wasted their time and money and like, I'd be shocked if it happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is maybe one of the reasons why it hasn't happened. I mean, think of all the accrediting visits that have happened over the course of the last 50 years since they began more than that, 70 years since they began modern accrediting and no one gets denied accreditation. There's not been one university out of all of the incompetent universities that have existed, that have shuttered their doors and um, have had riots on campus. Not one of them deserved to have accreditation pulled. Give me a break. Peter Wood of National Association of Scholars has kind of hipped me to exactly what's happening here. Uh, On his account, what the accreditors want to see, and I think he's right, is they look at the university mission, and then they look for evidence that the mission is being meaningfully pursued or executed. And what this has done is uh, incentivize the university mission to be revised in accord with DEI. Right. And then if the mission says, well, we're here to pursue social justice, then the accreditors say our job is to see, are you pursuing social justice? And so, you know, in fact, the current accreditation system 
actually incentivizes universities to formalize their DEI commitments. But but my question there would be, if let's say you established a university that said it was going to be a national conservative university, and then it organized its faculty and curriculum and activities around the idea that it was going to be a national conservative uh, university, would accreditors come in and say, well, you said you're going to do this? And you have like a national accreditor, a provost who's or national conservative provost who's making sure that everyone turns out a national conservative. Would that be OK? I, I assume me? I assume they that they would have to honor that if the, the premise of the institution is to be the NatCon state, you know, yeah. then their jobs come in there and see, are you being a good NatCon state? Yeah, but I so, might be wrong. Yeah. So this is why this is why I. The moot point. Yeah, I don't think there is a big of an obstacle. You know, when you start thinking about all the institutions that have been captured by the left when it comes to higher ed, and you think of the momentousness of the task that would come about from reconquering these institutions, it's like paralyzing. And, but on the other hand, when you think of it in terms of just the politics of it, like it's less paralyzing. Um, like, how many people would cry if gender studies was eliminated from most modern universities? I mean, I think people would cry. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think that uh, they're considered to be an unserious joke by the serious parts of universities. And, uh, and by and, the public. And by the public. So like, uh, so the idea of taking that on is not that um, crazy to me. Um but when you look at all the institutions, you look at uh, each department, each PhD granting place, the administration that exists on each university, the accrediting bodies that exist, the certifying bodies that exist for, you know, like certificates on universities and or the AMA and the uh, American Bar Association. We look at all of these things that are involved in accrediting or or certifying programs, and you say, well, all of those, what about them? What about them? Like, it's just totally paralyzing. And for me, um, the accrediting is is like the ultimate black pill when it comes to talking about the universities. Well, what do you do about accrediting? It's like, you step over it, you go through it, you ignore it. Like, that's, I'm not positive it would work, but I think the alternative is like very difficult to imagine um, uh, going through this whole list of institutions that you'd have to overcome in order to get reform done. Well, I think that the, the like, among the people I talk to, they either take your view or their view is that the current system is totally unredeemable. What we need is market solutions. People who say, screw the institutional structure altogether, start a university out of a storefront, with 15 experts, you know, who have a very clear idea of what they're trying to produce to their graduates. And we just need kind of radical experimentation outside the institutional structure because it's so rotten. Um, I mean, what say you to those people? I'm for, I'm for all of those. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I also that. worry about like the, the march through the institutions because and I wonder if you've seen the same thing. I'm 44, so I've been in a uh, academic position for 15 years since I was 30. And in that time, every new cohort of people who enter the university's faculty have been woker and less scholarly than the last. 
right? Um, and so I don't see at this point, I really don't like, at least in my field and, and a number of others, how you could currently get a PhD without kissing the ring so many times that you have come to live and believe these principles. So the boomer generation of professors is going to be gone very shortly. Um, you're going to be left with a, a lot of woke Gen Xers, a lot of scared Gen Xers who want to keep their mouth shut and go on, get along. And then about two generations of lunatics who have little scholarly chops and um, a, a major axe to grind with with the the kind of ideas that you and I would like to see promoted. Um so it's almost like the faculty, like the, it's just a numbers game on the level of faculty we, we've lost. Yeah, no, that's what I think. Um, and that's why I used that example of the, uh, our Lutheran seminary in the early seventies. Like that's what, that's what institutional conquest looks like. Like snap, snap institutional con, uh, conquest, a bunch of bloggers who write on. Um, you know, the imaginative conservative will be the new English department. And uh, you guys, you're gone. You can go to work for another university. I mean, that's like a solution. Another solution is you can have your stupid university here. We're going to have our smart university here that reads the books and try to figure out what they mean. Um, but yeah, I'm for hitting the gas pedal on all alternatives. Um, I just don't think uh, that the alternatives can just survive if the... the our current university continues to exist. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm a little older than you are. I'm 52. I started teaching here at Boise State in 2000. And I do consider like the first 10, 12, 14 years of my career, you know, like depending on how you measure it, to be like, it was great. Like I was working with old liberals in my department. Um, I wrote a book, the, my first book in 2009 that I got promoted to full professor on the kind of the wings of that book. It's a pretty conservative book. Um, family politics, it's called. And uh, and by pretty conservative, I mean, if you actually read it and think about it, it's it's like deeply <laughs> anti-modern book. And, uh, and you know, like I, and, and I was defended. Like my faculty members who are older than I am, they defended the book. It's like, yeah, this is like real, and it was real scholarship. It was like, it was an education writing the book. And it was rewarded and um, and like it was celebrated on campus, like Yenner published this book. It won several awards. Um, and now like Yenner publishes a book, won't make it on the announcements right. and that it wins awards doesn't. And like it's so it's a really changed place. And uh, and that is obviously the product of different people. That is the death of the old and the uh, the coming in of the new. And um and the environment around the university has changed too. I think the environment, the university is kind of uh, being run by social media radicals and at least it feels the need to react to them. So uh, yeah. So I think um, as I say, I'm for all of those things. I don't see how the university can continue to be respected. And I think it isn't as respected as it was 10 years ago. So I'm hoping that some of my work um, contributes to the stigmatizing of these otherwise venerable institutions like getting people not to like texas a&m adam that's tough yeah 
It's interesting that you mentioned 2009 as kind of the the twilight of the old university. That was the year I became an assistant professor. And for the first really six or seven years of my career, I was very successful in publishing in major journals in my field, all that stuff. Now I'm at a point where editors of like the editor of the flagship journal in my field just simply told me straight up, I'm not sending any of your work out for peer review. And I thought, oh, well, Taylor and Francis mm-hmm. will love to hear that, right? You can't just say you're not going to send anything from this one person out. And the, Taylor and Francis just sort of shrugged at me. It was like, eh, whatever, right? Um, so there yeah. definitely has been a vibe yeah. shift between 2009 and, and now. Um, and I expect we'll see it continue to move before it comes back. But I'm very eager to see um, yeah. what you and the guys at the Center for the American Way of Life get up to. Um, I wanted to thank you again for appearing on this um, and uh, for for making the kind of good trouble that you do. And if there's a way in the future that I can help you make some trouble, let me know. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. I like partners in crime. So, <laughs> Thanks again. It was great talking to you.